We're near the end of a cycle in which the earth is most dark in the northern hemisphere, in which to some extent this uh, often very speedy culture slows down, in which people have time off from work, possibly time off from electronics. And it's a very special time in which we can possibly find some kind of uh, stopping of the usual habits and mind, and possibly find some sense of renewal and inspiration for the next period of time. And it's a period that I personally love very much. I think I probably have either taught a retreat or been on retreat during the time that goes from the winter solstice to New Year's and a little bit beyond, almost every year for 30 or 40 years. And it's been a period that I really treasure as a chance to both let go of the old and, and be re-inspired and come to some sense of what wants to come next in my own being and what wants to come next in what Mary Oliver, the poet, called your own wild, precious life. <laughs> what wants to come next? And sometimes we have to listen um, quite deeply to know what wants to come next and have quiet and sometimes a stopping. You know, uh, there's a line from a poem by Rilke where he speaks of uh, the world and the earth being quiet and that one has to be quiet so that one can listen deeply for what's speaking in the in the world and so um, this morning I'm wanting to use our time here which is near the end of that uh, period of uh, stopping and having a little more quiet I want to use that as a chance for us to look more deeply into the themes particularly of letting go and of uh, listening for what's next and being re-inspired, setting intentions. And so I'm going to do that uh, partly through a talk, partly through a little bit of discussion, and then the last part of our morning, I'll do a group ritual in which we will go into a different space and hopefully be re-inspired. We'll see. Okay. So... Again, uh, this time can be one really of, uh, of stopping, just like the earth. The earth uh, so quiet and dark that we can, we can be like that. We can have this period of stopping. It's very hard in the culture. It's, again, so much speed. Uh, the historian uh, Toynbee, the British historian, he said that the hallmark of creativity for a culture and for people who would bring creativity to a culture are cycles of withdrawal and return. 
And I think that's true personally as well. That's very important sometimes just to withdraw from the ordinary habits, the ordinary life, and then return with vision, with more vision. And so in almost all cultures, there's been something like that, the going into the wilderness, the dropping of habits, the stopping of the ordinary, sometimes the uh, reversal of ordinary social realities. You know, in many cultures, there was a, a day once a year in which poor people became kings or queens and roles were reversed for a day. <laughs> and, and so there's something really crucial about that. I was thinking of this importance of stopping and maybe even this morning we can stop some in order to, to see more deeply. There's a, there's a line that some of you know in uh, one of the discourses of the Buddha where um, he's being chased by Angulimala, who wants to kill him, actually. And uh, the, Bo- uh, the Buddha is just walking normally, and Angulimala is running as fast as he can, but he's not catching up. And he says, stop. And the Buddha says, I have stopped. When are you going to stop? <laughs> And there's that, that sense of a, you know, an inner stopping permits listening. And so maybe we have even now a little more time before we go back to being fully involved. And can we use some of that time to, again, listen, to be more quiet, to be more with the earth? You know, any of you here who don't have too much more scheduled can stay in the land here, you know? Stay the rest of the day. There's a retreat ending this morning. You can go up into the retreat area, you know, after we finish here at noon. You can go up and be on the land here, be in the hall up there if you wish. And so, very important to quiet the mind in order to see and to really find ways to uh, renew uh, our lives, our sense of practice. And for me, I was, I was thinking... It's very, very important in our times, I think, to have a very broad sense of practice and to listen kind of broadly. I I think of our practice often as happening in three main areas. One has to do with our own inner lives, our own um, individual practice, our own inner sense of being. That's the first area of practice, and it's related to a lot of what we do in meditation. What are my habits? How does my mind work? Can I open my heart further? You know, as an individual practice. Then there's a sense of relational practice. How do I relate to people in my lives, in my family, work, people I'm close to, community, and so forth. And then there's a third area, uh, which is the area of um, how we relate as a citizen of the world, the citizen of the society. And that also can be a very important area of practice. And obviously, uh, each of these areas can be very powerful and compelling. And of course, there's such a a need in our world right now for people to respond. I think, you know, I think there is probably for many of us, you know, we we may have dreams, you know, 
trying to remember. I had dreams last night which were about responding to the state of the world. I don't remember them now, but I know that I had them. <laughs> and maybe you do too, but there's that sense. And just, you know, just the daily news is challenging. Do you find that? Just to, just to today's news, you know, and uh, just to be tracking things, you know, to be tracking, you know, just all, you know, whether it's the, you know, this collective crisis, climate issues, or economic equality, or, you know, realization that 5,000 years of patriarchy, sexism, and misogyny are not quite finished. <laughs> you know, I mean, a little bit of a wake-up call on that, you know, to racism, to, you know, just the levels of, of violence, you know. Um, do you know that the levels of violence in our society are 50 times greater than that in Great Britain? And it's completely correlated with the level of gun ownership. It's not like people are, I mean, talking about deaths, you know, homicides. And it's not that people have fewer fights, but just when they fight, they don't kill each other, right? You know, 50 times greater the homicide rate compared to England, right? And so, you know, again, wherever we go, you know, um, so there's a lot to be done there. And I, I was thinking that one of the things we can do when we listen carefully is we can get a sense of what uh, my edge is in each of these areas. What's my edge? What's my edge of learning and growing individually? What's my edge of learning in terms of my relationships? What's my edge of growing and learning in terms of my participation in the world? And I, I found just uh, about three days ago um, a beautiful writing on finding one's edge from a friend of mine, actually, named Robert Masters, who lives in uh, Eugene, Oregon. And does anyone know Robert's work? He's written a number of wonderful books. Uh, and actually was once a student of mine. I mean, I was, in a sense, learning from him very much, too, but he was officially a student once. And so this is, this is what he said. I mean, look up his work. It's Robert Augustus Masters. Um, he has probably 10 or 12 books that he's written, maybe more. He says, your edge is the experiential zone where your deepest, most relevant growth happens. It is a domain of both trepidation and excitement an existential threshold where you've begun to turn towards your fears, your pain, your grief, your shame, and your failings, everything you've kept in your shadow. Such encounters are what bring your edge out into the open. Intimacy with our edge is essential if we are to be our true size, embodying who and what we truly are. Our edge is the frontier of the known. It eludes preset cartography, our direct contact with it provides whatever guidance and navigational clues we need. If it's not a significant challenge, it's not your edge. If it doesn't require courage, it's not your edge. This doesn't mean that danger has to be present, but there is definite risk involved, whether it be losing face or speaking truths that might radically alter our life direction. If all it requires is thinking positively, not your edge. <laughs> if it doesn't, however, briefly bring up resistance in you, resistance that can toss aside um, 
that can easily toss aside what you're doing. It's not your edge. If you think that you're doing deep inner work while you sit relatively intact, it's not your edge. If it's easy, asking nothing much from you, it's not your edge. So we're looking for that sense of edge. You know you're at your edge when you intuit strongly that you need to go ahead, regardless of how comfortable or fearful you are. This is very different from taking foolish or should driven risks. So that's important. So part of what we can do, and you can see how that requires quiet to know what one's edge is of learning. What's my edge individually? What's my edge relationally? What's my edge in terms of responding to the state of the world? Those are the kind of questions I want to ask this morning and see what our see what our responses are. And ha- have this somehow give some vision for how we might live. You know, and there was, there was a passage, I was, I've been reading a really interesting book, uh, a reissue, revised somewhat. Uh, Rebecca Solnit has a book called Hope in the Dark, which is very, very nice. And I just, there's a nice uh, quote that she had from here from from an old uh, uh, person who died quite a while ago, who I, who I read, I think I read when I was a teenager, named Paul Goodman. Anyone know his work? He, was, he wrote a lot about education. Uh, he called himself an anarchist. And this is what he wrote. Suppose you had the revolution you were, ta- you were talking and dreaming about. Suppose your, si- suppose your side had won and you had the kind of society you now wanted. How would you live? How would you personally be in that society? Start living that way now. So, right, so the vision can, can help us to get a sense of how to be in the present moment. So, I want to talk about letting go and then talk about uh, working with intentions, getting in touch with that vision. And then we'll have some questions. We'll do a practice together. Okay? So my hope is that all of us don't just hear about this, but explore in an inner way and come out of here. Okay, I'm ready. Maybe you've done that. How many of you have already done something like this? Okay, so a few of you, but not so many. Okay, so we, I'm catching you right at the, the right moment. Okay, very good. Okay. So before we let go, we have to know what we're letting go of. Sounds like it makes sense, right? (laughs) And, And yet we don't always know what we want to let go of. What we want to let go of is really that which doesn't serve us, or maybe those obstacles from following our vision, individually, personally, and relationally and collectively. What gets in the way? What are the habits that we've seen a lot and we're ready to let go of? So we need to really be able to see clearly our bad habits, the habits of mind and heart and body that we're ready to let go of, the patterns, the mind states, you know, the fear, the (coughs) self-judgment, the paralysis, whatever. We have to do that. And meditation is a very good tool 
for letting us get in touch with what we want to let go of. You know, I sometimes think that we should really kind of advertise at Spirit Rock a little more honestly. I, don't, I haven't looked at the promotional literature generally uh, recently, but I think it probably has to do with developing kindness, mindfulness, wisdom. It could also say, come to Spirit Rock. Get in touch with your really bad habits and learn to let go of them. But study your own neuroses in depth. How many of you would sign up for that? Okay. <laughs> you know, I think there's a, a well-known uh, quotation from uh, the Tibetan teacher Chagyam uh, Trungpa Rinpoche, which really points to the way that with uh, meditation, uh, we gain in self-knowledge. You know, we learn, and, again, it's, and he says, self-knowledge is 70% bad news. <laughs> so there's a way that we, we see, you know, we, so, you know, we see these patterns, we see our, and sometimes we have to sit for a while to really be able to see that, but part of that letting go process is to see what gets in the way of our hearts being open, our minds being open, our wisdom being there, our ability to really um, act fully, be there. And so, and one of the, uh, one of the facts that makes possible uh, the letting go is good old neuroplasticity. Here's to neuroplasticity. Everyone, neuroplasticity is that, you know, it's, what, it's one of the main findings of recent neuroscience that in actuality, we could have do, uh, followed some bad habit 200,000 times or 3 million times, and we can actually still change it pretty quickly. Isn't that remarkable? So, you know, I can think of people I've worked with who had the same really, uh, I've worked a lot with people, particularly with the judgmental mind, who had really incredibly hard, harsh self-judgments that had been repeated for 50 years every day. And with the right practices, we're able to actually make significant shifts in a year or two. Right? That's neuroplasticity. And so we can let go because of that reality about our minds and brains that we can actually change. And, but we need the program. We need a vision to be able to do that. And so we can see into what we might call our limiting beliefs that which constrains us. And a lot of our practice is being able to identify that which gets in the way of our deeper potential and our dreams for our visions. One of the other aspects of letting go is, again, based on mindfulness, it's seeing when a certain tendency of mind arises and having enough mindfulness, clarity, and energy to say, I'm not going there, or I'm not going to follow that. Or one of the main teachings that we explore here is that teaching called the Two Arrows, which is about how we can have a certain kind of uh, pain. And uh, everyone has pain, but that um, one of the tendencies, if we don't look out for it, is when we have something difficult happen, we react to it. 
something difficult happens in my relationship and I react and I'm negative towards myself, I blame, I judge, I'm reactive. And one of the ways that we can let go is by really noticing those patterns of reactivity enough so we let go of reactivity. That's big, right? That's a huge part of our practice. Can I notice reactivity and say, I'm not going there? That would be a part of letting go. You can see how that takes mindfulness. We have to notice the patterns. You know, I was just noticing yesterday, um, I received a few emails and it seemed like the people in the emails, this, these were personal or, or sometimes little small group emails, it seemed like some of the people in the emails were reactive. I noticed myself becoming a little reactive. And then I followed Sylvia's guidance of basically don't answer emails too quickly. Right? Wait a while. You know? And I waited and something settled and the reacti- I could see the reactivity and said, I'm not going there. But the reactivity is so quick in our lives, isn't it? It's there with one comment, one thing happening. That's a part of letting go. You know, and we can, it may be that we have that intention to really work with, with that reactivity. Another thing we can let go of is fixed views. Where do I have fixed views or really narrow views that I'm hooked on, some of which could be unconscious, could be fixed views about my own potential, about who I am, you know, what, who this person is. Can I let go of fixed views? And have more openness. It could be a fixed view about this, the way the world's going. That we may, again, we may, and the, the nature of fixed views as opposed to wise views is that fixed views have reactivity connected with them. That there's some kind of grasping after the view or there's some kind of pushing away of something. And there may be elements of truth in the fixed view, but there's that reactivity and tightness. That's what we want to look at. So part of letting go may be to investigate our own fixed views. What are they? What do we want to let go of? There's a a very very nice uh, teaching on letting go from the uh, American uh, teacher who studied a long time in Thailand named Achan Sumedho. Achan means teacher in the Thai tradition. And Sumedho gave a whole talk on letting go. This is encouragement for our letting go. So here it is. The practice of letting go is very effective for minds obsessed by compulsive thinking. Anyone here have compulsive thinking? Just a few of us. (laughs) Okay. Uh, You simplify your meditation practice down to just two words. Let go. Rather than try to develop this practice, develop deep concentration, find the deepest insights, read the text, and so forth. Uh, Rather than do this, develop this, achieve that, go into that, you just let go, let go, let go. I did nothing but this for about two years. Every time I tried to understand or figure things out, I'd say, let go, let go, until the desire would fade out. So I'm making it very simple for you. I suggest just being an earthworm. Letting go of the desire, for example, to radiate love throughout the world. Rather than do that, just be an earthworm who knows only two words. Let go, let go, let go. So, um, 
that way of letting go. So we let, can let go at the level of our mindfulness, noticing things. We can let go, and it will come to in a moment, we can let go deliberately. One of the ways that we let go really at the level of the heart is through forgiveness, which we've looked at sometimes here, which is an important practice for me, probably for many of you. And it's also a, a practice that can be misunderstood. I think of it really as a heart practice in which we see where there's a kind of reactivity that I still have in my heart towards something that happened in the past. And again, we want to always remember that forgiving something means somehow letting go of my own reactivity towards the past. It doesn't mean condoning what happened or forgetting what happened or being nicey-nice with the person that forgiveness can coexist with firm and strong action, not having the person be in our lives and so forth. But there's a kind of noticing that the past event still has hold on my heart. I'm still caught there. And forgiveness is about that. Another thing about forgiveness is it can't be rushed. One can intend to forgive, but sometimes it's not the time because there's maybe, maybe we have to be in touch with the hurt or the anger or something. So you can't be rushed, you can't force forgiveness. That being said, it can be a very powerful practice like our other heart practices, like loving kindness or compassion that we may do. It really is about intention. It's about intention coming out of wisdom in relation to the pain or reactivity they have in relationship to the past. And the understanding that I wanna move in the direction where I can release the pain and reactivity. That's a direction. It's not, again, something I impose on myself. And we can practice with forgiveness in small and large ways. I practice with forgiveness a lot when I'm driving. My, some of my two special practices of forgiveness are with people when I'm driving and also with telemarketers. You because know, I sometimes notice if, if a telemarketer reaches me, I can be reactive. And, um, and then after that, uh, usually after I've hung up, then I do a few moments of forgiveness practice sort of to, to mend the harm. I, I once had a neighbor who was a, a telemarketer, and he told me about how it was. It's not easy life. Right? Not easy. Anyone here been a telemarketer? Kind of, yeah. It's not easy. So, you know, so Jack Kornfield had a line about forgiveness, which is instructive. He said, forgiveness is giving up hope for a better past. <laughs> and so it's, it's really about that quality of noticing that I have reactivity in relation to the past and inclining towards forgiveness. And we, you know, we do forgiveness practice sometimes here one of the main ways we do it is in a way similar to how we practice loving kindness or metta. We have phrases which we repeat in the mind which help us to let go. So we might say something like in, direction, in relationship to myself. If I have acted in word, thought, or deed in ways that have hurt myself, I free forgive myself as much as is possible in this moment. And I might use a phrase like that and then let there be a pause and I just sit with whatever comes up and I might do that practice for five minutes or ten minutes 
And I can do it similarly with other people. I can work with, you know, if I have hurt you in word, thought, or deed, consciously or unconsciously, may you forgive me. You can ask for forgiveness. Or if I, if, um, if you have hurt me in word, thought, or deed, I freely forgive you as much as is possible in this moment. Something like that. So you can use phrases like that uh, to work with it. Maybe sometime soon we'll have a whole, we can have a whole session on forgiveness. How many would like to have a little more time with forgiveness as a session here? Yeah, because it, it deserves a little bit more time than I'm, than I'm giving it. But we can work with that. Again, the understanding is that as long as there's not a letting go of that pain and reactivity, we're in some sense in bondage to, the, to what's left over. Right? So we incline in that direction with intention. Uh, Dr. King, Dr. Martin Luther King said, forgiveness is not an occasional act, but a constant attitude. And Oscar Wilde said, always forgive your enemies, nothing annoys them so much. Um, and so there, there's something, you know, we find that there may be material in our lives which we need to forgive ourselves. That could be part of letting go. You know, we, ha- we all, as it were, are waking up. We're intending to wake up at the same time, same time that we have things in our lives that we don't like, that we're uncomfortable with. Can I let go of any judgment about that? Not easy, but that can be part of our letting go. This is from Bell Hooks. For me, forgiveness and compassion are always linked. How we hold people, including ourselves, accountable for wrongdoing And yet at the same time, we remain in touch with their humanity enough to believe in their capacity to be transformed. So it's a deep quality. This part of letting go, we let go in the mind, we let go in the heart in a way. And then the the other aspect of the practice is that we, we both let go of the difficult, the reactive, the old, the bad habits, but we also incline towards the beautiful. We incline towards beautiful qualities in ourselves. We incline towards what our heart is calling for. We incline, incline towards what is being really um, pointed to when we really get in touch with our edge. Right? We're, what's calling us? What are our directions? What are my directions personally, relationally, collectively? You know, we try to find what is that next step? And a lot of it is actually sometimes we don't, we don't know what is calling me. Sometimes we have to listen. That's why I think there's really part of meditation is a deep listening that is really crucial. And sometimes in terms of what comes next or what my intention is, we have to sit in the dark. We have to be there and listen and not know what's going to be there, you know, what's going to happen. Sometimes we're confused about what comes next. That's why I love, personally, I love this time of year, being with the dark, being with the unknown. Sometimes being on retreat, we have to sometimes really get quiet before something can emerge that will tell us what comes next. And it's a beautiful practice to to listen for what comes next. And again, we can do this in all the parts of our lives because one thing that happens when we meditate I think that we all know is that in a way we activate intuition. 
and I, I use intuition as that kind of direct knowing, not with the ordinary mind, that can often see patterns that can be visionary, that can see a large pattern just in a moment without thinking about it. You know? Now we use intuitions, it's that quality of knowing directly in an instant. And that happens more and more when we meditate. It's that quiet, moving out of the ordinary, the habitual mind. That's required sometimes to, to, to know. We have, and, and, and retreats can do that. Periods of quiet can do that. Moving away from our habits can do that. There's a beautiful story of, uh, of Gandhi. In uh, 1929, the Indian independence movement was at a crossroads. And Gandhi did not know what to do. And people were telling him, hey, you're Gandhi, what should we do? And he said, I don't know. Hey, you're Gandhi, you're not supposed to not know. He says, I don't know. And I need to listen. I know that if I listen, the next step will come to me. And so he sat on his porch overlooking the river in India, in his community. He sat there and weeks went by and he just sat and said, I will know. People came to him and complained and he said, I am waiting. I know that the answer will come. And he listened and the answer wasn't coming. And then one day, I think this was six weeks into just sitting, hanging out on the porch. It's not what you think of Gandhi. But there it is. <laughs> there it is hanging out on the porch, I don't know. (laughs) And then he said, one morning it came to me, we will march to the sea and make salt from the ocean. And this would be to go against the British monopoly on salt. Maybe many of you know that scene from the movie on Gandhi. They started, they moved out of their community other people liked the idea. <laughs> they moved out of their community, I think, with 150 people. By the time they got to the ocean, there were 10,000 or more people marching. And it said that what happened after that, because the British came down really hard and showed a lot of brutality. And it, it's sometimes said by historians that that broke the back of the British occupation because the British lost whatever moral legitimacy they still had. And it came out of that waiting, in part. It came out of that listening. So can we do something like that? Can we, um, can we listen for what's there for us? Can we listen individually? Can we listen for what calls us in terms of how I respond to the different crises of the world? You know? Can we listen even though things are difficult and know what to do? You know, sometimes I think that we're in collectively something like a collective dark night of the soul where we don't know and things seem hard. But we have to listen and know that, you know, um, out of the darkness also comes um, new insight and fertile, generative insight. We can also incline towards the beautiful. We may know, I want to open my heart more. I want my heart to be more there in my daily life. We might know I want to have 
maybe spiritual practice, be more of the center of my life. However you say it, I want to manifest kindness more in my relationships, whatever it is. That part of this inclination, part of uh, our aspiring towards uh, what comes next is to move towards beautiful qualities. And again, just like noticing, as it were, our bad habits is a fundamental part of our practice, so is moving towards these beautiful qualities. And again, it happens very naturally. We develop more mindfulness, we develop more kindness. It's not always linear, but this is what par- part of what happens when we practice. We access more wisdom, more compassion, maybe more sense of connection. And so we can deliberately inquire or inquire and move in that direction. I want to have more equanimity in my life. I want to develop more courage, less fear, more heartfulness in my work, whatever it might be. You know? And so this is part of things. And it's that way that we <clears throat> can do that by harnessing the power of intention which is so crucial to moving in new directions. Working with intention, which we can do by having these big intentions to you know, um, develop more fearlessness, equanimity, courage. Or it also could be a small intention of, I'm going to try to <clears throat> be a little bit kind with this difficult discussion. But intention is a huge part of our practice. It's really a way that we get in touch with our deeper aspirations moment by moment, day by day, month by month. And it's something which we can really work with. Probably many of you, how many of you set an intention every morning for the day? You can do that, right? You can set an intention. You can set an intention before um, meetings, before discussions with people. Some Groups might have group intentions that they set at the beginning of meetings. I've been part of groups that do that. Groups can really work uh, with intentions in a very creative way. The heart of intention is the sense, I want to move in this direction. And the Buddha actually said that intention is the heart of what he meant by karma. Karma is an often misunderstood concept, but the basis of karma is very simple. It's that whatever, karma means action, literally is the word for action. Whatever we do, whatever we do, the intention connected with that action is strengthened. That's it. We act with greed, we strengthen greed. We act with kindness, we strengthen kindness. And so he linked karma with the intention connected with any action of word, or mind or body. That's really crucial. So um, intention is this very, very central aspect. Um, And this is from uh, Jack Kornfield. The heart is our garden. And along with each action, there is an intention that is planted like a seed. We can use a sharp knife to cut someone. And if our intention is to do harm, it will be, we will be a murderer. We can perform an almost identical action, but if we are a surgeon, the intention is to heal and save a life. The action is the same, yet depending on its purpose of intention, it can either be a terrible act or a compassionate act. 
And so we want to see what's my core intention for myself for this next period of time. What's my core intention in my relationships? What's my core intention in my way of being in the world? When, what are my next steps to help me implement that? So let me just end with uh, one of my favorite um, passages about working with your own edge. This is from the uh, poet Roka. And I'll end with this. Then we have a little bit of discussion. Then we'll do a, a ritual together, a group practice. This is from Rilke's Letter to a Young Poet. Anyone know that text? Yeah, beautiful, beautiful text. The young poet was about 20 years old, 21 years old, was very impatient, wanted to have everything in his life worked out. Rilke uh, was presumably the old poet. He was 30 at the time. So um, this is what he said. Have patience with everything that remains unsolved in your heart. Try to love the questions themselves, like locked rooms and like books written in a foreign language. Do not now look for the answers. They cannot now be given to you because you could not live them. It is a question of experiencing everything. At present, you need to live the question. Perhaps you will gradually, without even noticing it, find yourself experiencing the answer some distant day. So sometimes our intention is connected with going in a certain direction, but not knowing exactly what the next steps are. But knowing the direction is enough. Knowing that intention, knowing the question is enough. That's really crucial. So we really want to just see whatever is there when we listen carefully. So I'll stop now and see if there are any comments or questions related to the theme, and then we'll then we'll do a little bit of work with the paper and pen. Anyone have a thought, question, comment? Yeah, please. We'll use the mic. I just wanted to add a quote um, from David White that seems really appropriate. Yeah. Sometimes it takes darkness and the sweet confinement of your aloneness yeah. to learn anything or anyone that does not bring you alive is too small for you. Yeah. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah. <clears throat> what does not bring you alive is too small for you. It makes me think of that wonderful quotation also very helpful for this period from Howard Thurman. I, I use that a lot, but it's that, that response that he gave to a young man. Howard Thurman was a great mystic and uh, activist, um, uh, African-American theologian who lived out in the Bay Area the last part of his life. He, was, he taught at Howard for a long time. And he was asked by this young man, what should I do with my life? And he answered uh, in an interesting way for an activist. He said, don't ask what the world needs, but ask what makes you come alive, because what the world needs is people who have come alive. Right, so that's, that can be part of the, thank you for that David White quotation, very similar sense with um, Howard Thurman.
And I know that sometimes, sometimes it takes really being quiet for a while to know one's um, deeper direction. It's not easy, is it? You know, our lives get so busy and there's so many emails. <laughs> or text messages, what? But that, uh, I remember, you know, a very crucial time for me, um, I was able to go to something like half-time work. And I was able to segregate the work into about five days a month. And I had 25 days a month without needing to work for about a year. And I kind of did okay economically. I had some savings. But I did that because I wanted to, I knew that something deeper wanted to come out of me And I have the sense that when I was just working all the time and busy, and I'd been very busy with other things, it was very hard to hear that inner voice. And so I did that, and it took, you know, I did some retreats, and it took a while, but out of that period, I had to make space for that edge to develop more fully and be more visible. And sometimes we have to do that. Maybe it's not a whole year, but something like that, like Gandhi's story, I think we all know some version of that, that sometimes we have to just make some space. Sometimes the new cannot happen unless there's some space for it. Right? So that's another reflection. Any, any further thoughts or comments or questions? Okay, why don't we go right to the, uh, the practice then, okay? Ready? Is anyone on the, right on the edge of a, a question or thought you wanted to share? Okay, okay. so here it is. Uh, take your piece of paper. And you should have something like, I think, something like half of a, eight and a half by 11 sheet. You'll probably need about that amount of space. We're going we're gonna to work with um, the two themes that I mentioned, letting go and setting intentions. Okay, those are the two aspects. Anyone, anyone need another sheet of paper? Okay. Anyone, raise your hand if you need a sheet. Okay, so I think... That'll be fine. Okay, so um, take your sheet of paper and draw a line down the middle. And we'll, we'll have some writing on letting go on one side and some on intentions on the other. We'll take, we'll take some time and we'll do this in silence. On one side, for letting go, Invite yourself to identify three things to let go of in the next period of time. It could be the next weeks, it could be the next year for you, however you want to frame it. Three things to let go of. They could be inner states, they could be, I could let go of my fear, this habit, this tendency, and so forth. Three things to let go of. We'll just sit in silence as we reflect and write for a few minutes.
If somehow there's a, a fourth thing to let go of, that's okay. Okay. Anyone need more time? Raise your hand. Okay. okay. Let's take about another 30 seconds. Then we'll work with intention. So on the other side of the paper, I'd like to invite you to reflect on and write down three intentions. One for your own individual being, one for your relationships, and one for your being in the larger world. What are your intentions in relationship to your own inner being? First, your relationships, your relation to the larger world an intention for each of those and again this is just this will just be completely um, private for yourself Raise your hand if you need a little more time.
And now one more reflection. And that has to do with next steps. For each of your three intentions, what are some next steps that you can take to realize or come closer towards those intentions in the next week? If you want to be really radical, make it the next 24 hours. What are my next steps that I can take in the next week or so that bring me closer to realizing these intentions? See what it is for each of the three. Raise your hand if you need a little more time. Okay. Next, like to what we're going to do is um, I'm going to invite you, if you wish, to take the part of the paper that has what you want to let go of, and you may, if it's helpful, maybe make a note somewhere else. But I'm going to ask you to uh, take your paper and sort of divide it in half. And if you'd like, bring up the part of the sheet that has what you'll let go of, place it in the bowl, 
and I will symbolically bury all the pieces of paper on the land at Spirit Rock where it will compost and turn into trees and beautiful things. So, again, if, if, if you'd like to have a note of uh, what you're letting go of, if that's helpful, you might want to take a note of that before you bring the paper up. Okay, but, and we'll do this again in silence. When you're ready, you can bring up the sheet and you can come up whenever you're ready and bring the sheet sheet and place it in this bowl here. You can do that right now. And I, I'm not going to read these. May everything that we have let go of or are about to let go of, <laughs> may it be offered in the spirit of helping to compost well. And may our deep intentions for ourselves, for our relationships, and for our being in our world of need. May those intentions be remembered, be strengthened by the fact that they are brought out in this group setting. And they, may they become powerful and effective in guiding our lives in all these areas. Let's just sit for a few moments. <clears throat>
And again, bringing those intentions to mind and holding them for a few moments, each of the three core intentions. If you have some other ones as well, that's fine. Let those intentions be recognized and in a way stored in the heart where they may guide our being in the next period of time. So we close by remembering that we meet here and offer the benefits of our morning, of our letting go of our intentions to ourselves, to each other, to those in our lives. And then also beyond those more familiar circles, we offer the benefits of our morning and of our intentions out further into the world to all beings. Again, always remembering that we are part of all beings. May our practice and our intentions be of benefit. to uh, check back at three months, six months, nine months, and a year. Check how the intentions are going. So thank you again. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.